Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hello. I'm not outside today. I'm in my kitchen. I love recording my intros outside, but um, lately it has been vile weather. And every time I've tried to record something, I've just mainly had little blasts of wind going into the microphone and had to do it 20 times over. (laughs) So today I'm surrendering and I am in the middle of cooking a big stew. So I thought I'd bring you in here with me instead where it's lovely and warm and cosy and yes the dining room ceiling is leaking a bit but we're mostly dry (laughs) and out of the window I can see all of the leaves falling off the ash tree that overhangs my garden and I'm actually weirdly looking forward to raking those all up at the weekend making a big pile of them it's one of my favorite jobs of the year Everything is looking a bit battered though, and it's so dark. The sky is just steely grey all over. I don't think I've seen any light at all today. Days like this are really hard, aren't they? I wrote recently on my Substack about how to bring light into this time of year. And one of the things that I always do is to light candles in the afternoon It just lifts that very blue light that we get in winter, brings something warmer. I'll be doing that in a moment. But what's lovely at the moment too is that the garden has still got a big pile of pumpkins in left over from Halloween. I always keep them because I'm going to eat all of them eventually. And they are this blast of bright colour in the middle of all the grey. It's so lovely to see. I keep looking out at them and they're cheering me up. It's that time of year, isn't it, for 
warming, cozy food, fighting against the weather, getting as much light as you can, but also doing the opposite, letting your body notice the changing of the season, (sighs) adapting, surrendering, giving in to that quieter, more restful time. I say that today, having spent the morning with 20 tabs open, trying to buy myself a Christmas party outfit, because even I have to attend those. (laughs) Only a couple of year, mind. But um, it's funny how that desire to dazzle, to sparkle, even hits our bodies at this point in the year. Anyway, I'm here to introduce you to this week's episode. We're talking to Caitlin Curtis about her brilliant book, Living Resistance. And it's a book that's very much about gentle ways to resist the darker forces in the world. This isn't a book about shouting at people. It's certainly not not a book about violence or aggression. But it's actually about how we can nurture ourselves and our minds so that we can create better lives. Caitlin and I have become quite good friends over the last year or so. There's something about having a book out at the same time that bonds you with other authors. You'd think it would put us in competition, but it doesn't. It kind of bonds you together because you see each other doing similar things at similar times. And it helps to talk about the stresses and strains of that. So Caitlin is my wonderful buddy who I chat to every month. And I was so delighted to talk to her about her book, which I know you're all going to love. I'll leave you with our conversation and I'll see you in a little while. Welcome to the True Stories Book Club. And I am thrilled tonight to have a very special guest, Caitlin Curtis. (laughs) (laughs) We were were just saying that your book has sold out, Caitlin. (laughs) And you're waiting for new ones to come in on Amazon. So if anyone hasn't been able to get one, please do click that pre-order button because it will come back. But um, that's every author's worst nightmare, isn't it? Yes. Well, it's a great (laughs) problem to have. So on one hand, I was like, wow, that's great. And then realizing that people might not order it because of that, you know? So I'm like, please keep ordering, you know, it'll come back. Yeah. Well, it's such a lovely book. I'm not surprised. We're going to be talking tonight about living resistance and maybe a little bit about native as well. You can see I've been bookmarking pages. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we'll just do do a little passing. Sure. Um, But would you like, you've got a poem to read to us from living resistance to start. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm a poet and storyteller in, Thankfully, my publishers have let me just be myself. So my books are mm-hmm. often essays, chapters, and then there'll be poetry just sort of thrown in there. And I think of poetry as sort of like a, you know, just like a deep breath in the midst of difficult content sometimes. And so mm-hmm. um, I always throw my my poetry, sprinkle it throughout my books because I want us to just like stop and take a breath, you know. So this is the poem from the second part of my book, Living Resistance. Maybe you don't know strength until you've rested beneath the branches of a magnolia tree, feeling the weight of her regal waxed leaves. Maybe you don't know community 
until you've watched ants rebuild what was broken by a world much bigger than theirs. Maybe you don't know fortitude until you've noticed geese fly to the furthest border of warmth to protect their children. Maybe you don't know compassion until you place your hands in the dirt and feel the pulse of the earth, her heart and soul welcoming you. Maybe you don't know time until you run your fingers over a river rock, their skin softened by generations of magic. Maybe you don't know yourself until the mirror of the water reminds you of your goodness and brings you home again. Thank you. I was just hearing so many resonances of all of the news that we've all been paging through over the last couple of weeks. There was, mm-hmm. That speaks to such a lot of, I suppose, what we've all been feeling of reaching for that empathy and that solidarity yeah. and wondering what we are in this moment as human beings and, and mm-hmm. how helpless we suddenly are. And it, I, I think for that reason, it's a great day to talk about your work, actually. There's so much of it that that speaks into this this moment, and that I, I suppose for me, like, talks to me about that feeling of what on earth do I do in this time? Can you speak to that a little mm-hmm. bit? Yeah, it's interesting to be a writer in times like this, or we could say in any time really, you know. But in times of <laughs> yeah. unrest and like where pain is more visceral and it's more more seen and noticed and being a writer and being someone who tries to help heal with words helps. You know, I say that words are my medicine. I often write about that. And I was at a speaking event this last weekend as so much was happening in Gaza and Israel, all the things that have been going on in the world and Haiti. I mean, there's, there's stuff going on everywhere. And just thinking about the pain of the human experience and it makes me feel so ill-equipped And then at the same time, what else would I possibly do besides Mm. write words and write poetry and lean into the power of storytelling and how we are connected to one another and our our human condition is one of reciprocity and kinship somehow. And a lot of my work, of course, is helping us connect back to Mother Earth and even to our child selves because that is a way of healing our connection to each other as well. Mm. So... It, it never fails that every time this feeling of not doing enough, not being enough, what can we do? And then when I can pause and realize that my job is to write and I need to write, my job is yeah. to speak at these speaking events or lead a retreat and not just teach people to love themselves well, but to carefully and in the, the vein of kinship, lean into the work in the world that is theirs to do. And I think that that's mm-hmm. what we have to remember And instead of getting overwhelmed, because it is overwhelming. And every time I'm like, of course, I wrote a book on resistance. <laughs> of course I did. That's great. Well, I mean, taking responsibility for the entire world is really hard. And, and I think that yeah. we're surprised all the time that we find that hard. Yeah. But, you know, Living Resistance is not a book that tells us to do more than we can. It's actually a book about really, I'd perhaps say small gestures, but they're not small, but they're integrated gestures in lots of ways. They're personal and they're manageable and they're part of a life rather than part of a kind of urge towards global action, you know, direct action, which is is actually more than, than in reality we can do, even though we feel like we ought to maybe. Yes. Yeah. Mm. I think um, when I wrote the book, I struggled with the the whole micro versus macro. You know, some of us say that 
we need to start in the micro. We need to start in our everyday lives, in our minds, in our hearts, and that that change will ripple out of us. Others say, no, we need to be in the macro. We need to be Mm. at the mass protests, at the institutional levels, at the government levels. We need to be changing laws, you know, and then there's everything in between. And when I studied social work in my undergrad, I often struggled with this exact same question. Do I want to study micro social work or macro? Do I want (laughs) to study one-on-one with people or do I want to help groups? And I couldn't decide. And for me, I've recognized that it's all important and that we have to talk about living into our own form of resistance in our everyday life, at the dinner table, in our homes, because that will feed into our communities, which feeds into the macro. Like it's, it's all connected Mm -hmm. instead of people. Sometimes we make it seem like those two things are at war with one another. And instead we should remember that it's all like a loop that's just repeating. So how are we making things better on every level? How are we tending to these wounds on every level? Mm -hmm. I think that's important to stop and ask ourselves that question. Yeah. Beautifully said. Before we dig into the, the book in detail, I'd like to talk a little bit about Native, which is your previous book, mm-hmm. um, which I described very badly as a memoir in my um, book club summary. But it, it's so many things, isn't it? And like, what's the yeah. one? I don't know what's the one word for that because it is about your personal story. But yeah. It also there's a lot of hi- a huge amount of history there that maybe people don't know about being Indigenous American or what, what's your preferred language for that first of all? Yeah, I'm Indigenous. English and I'll just blunder into it. <laughs> yeah, no, Indigenous is perfect and I mean a lot of people in the US don't even use the word Indigenous so sometimes I'll say that word and they'll look at me like I don't know what that word means so then I say I'm Native American and they're like oh okay. <laughs> so <laughs> either one of those works because trying to communicate who we are, who I am is difficult, you know, so yeah, but Indigenous is great. Well, that, that's it's good to know that. I mean, it, it seems to me that you you kind of came into an understanding of your indigenous identity as you got older, rather than necessarily having it through your life. Would that mm-hmm. be fair to say? Yeah, in the sense that it wasn't like I discovered I was indigenous, no. which I think some people think that that's what I'm saying. But um, I grew up in and out of my culture, but also grew up in a family that was you know, because of genocide and assimilation and colonization, many of us whose grandparents or great-grandparents were part of the boarding school era, so forced away from their homes and forced into these government-run and church-run, often church-run boarding schools that happened in the United States. Um, So many of our ancestors, so many of our elders learned to be very silent and scared to talk about their culture. And so in my family, that silence was also there, like in many indigenous families. So even though we knew we were Potawatomi and it was there, we there was no um, conversations about celebrating who we are and leaning mm. into who we are. You know, it just, we didn't know how. And I think as I got older, as I had children and came to a point where I was starting to deconstruct, right? Ask all these questions about my upbringing. I grew up Southern Baptist, so conservative Christian and when I got to college and, and a bit after that and having children and asking, you know, what do I want them to know about being Potawatomi? That I just didn't get to know these things when I was young and experiences with my own ancestors sort of speaking to me and reminding me of who I am. That like many of us, you know, who kind of decide how important it is a little bit later in life or um, as we get a little older and wanting it to be more a part of my life. And so, yeah. you know, starting to learn the language and learn our stories and uh, be part of that in a different way. And then, of course, it 
just completely changes the whole way you see the world. It was always there, but I just didn't understand. I didn't have a context to see it or to celebrate who I am as a Potawatomi woman. That's such a journey because colonization is ongoing. I mean, the whole point of colonization is to silence and oppress. And so when we choose to be embodied and healing and caring about who we are and being vocal, it's, it is a form of resistance in every way. So mm-hmm. it's an honor for me to get to write stories and share my own stories and share the stories of what it means to be Potawatomi in our world mm-hmm. today. You know, that's a real gift and I don't take it for granted. Mm. It, and in fact, it, you know, there's so many layers of, of not understanding to cut through there, uh, you know, in the, in the population at large, you know, there's, there's so little real knowledge about mm-hmm. what it means to be an indigenous person in America as opposed to a white person or yeah. to anybody that, that's kind of come later. Right. I mean, you write really eloquently about the, the kind of the moment that you began to realize that your Christian faith was not fully respecting your mm-hmm. indigenous ways of knowing. How's that developed for you now? What's what's that relationship like now? That that sounds like it was a really wrenching time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting because it was it was the natural questions that I was already starting to ask. But then I think a big thing that happened as well was the events that happened at Standing Rock in the United States. So basically a a confrontation of, you know, this pipeline and uh, peaceful indigenous protesters and all their allies. It was a huge event in 2016. And so for me, it was like, I was deconstructing and asking these really difficult questions. And I was, I was writing, I was a brand new author. And then also seeing this oppression happening live on television, seeing these dogs were attacking protesters and they were being arrested and they were being shot out with rubber bullets and hosed down with water hoses, like just seeing indigenous resistance like on the front lines Mm -hmm. in front of me in our present day life and then having to try to figure that out with the christianity that i grew up knowing just really intensified the dissonance for me and then at this around the same time i started writing more pieces about that writing for um sojourners magazine which is a a Christian kind of social justice publication here in the United States, you know, being with them, writing for them was really helping me find my voice and not be so scared to name these things for myself. And, and it has been really difficult. I, I'm moving a lot more toward more interfaith dialogue and more of that kind of advocacy because I've always valued it. And I'm seeing more and more how much hope is held in conversations with all of us who are from different mm. cultures and ethnic racial backgrounds from different religions and faiths. But I don't, you know, I don't attend church anymore. I'm not part of an institutional body. And uh, that's a part of my story that I, I want to be open with people about because a lot of people from my generation are, are questioning these things and doing the same yeah. for whatever different reasons. And I think that we uh, need to talk about the changes we want to see in American Christianity, at least, but in religion and faith spaces that are often toxic, often abusive. And there just came a point for me. And I still speak in Christian spaces a lot. I travel and, you know, spend time with a lot of especially progressive churches and at conferences sharing my work. And I believe it's really relevant within the church because I know that people are trying to ask what has colonization done and can we be better than we have been? And I appreciate that. And so I'm Mm. grateful to be part of that movement, you know, in that conversation. But it it has definitely been a lot of grief and a lot of therapy. Yeah. <laughs> a lot yeah. of um, 
Oh, Thank goodness for therapy. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. I am so grateful I was in therapy as I wrote Native because it was such a hard book to write and I crashed so hard after I wrote it. I don't think I just, I don't think I realized what I was pouring into it. <laughs> you're, you're, you know? you're, yeah, you're preaching to the choir here. I mean, we, yeah. well, we've, we've had these conversations backstage, haven't we, about, uh, I don't know, what it is to be a writer who shares personal information mm-hmm. and to carry on like shepherding that work in the world when it feels so deeply personal yeah and I don't know I my experience is that you kind of go out there having to like pretend that what you're talking about is something that that's quite distant from you oh yes I would love to talk about that passage from my book where I had a complete you know (laughs) meltdown that sounds yeah let's talk about that when you're actually like oh this is you know yes it's triggering it's really hard Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah yeah it's real it's real it's not a, a character actually when there's a critique of an institution as part of that that must add a whole a whole other spicy dimension of other people's reactions I'm guessing yeah yeah and and at some point I had to come to the realization that uh it's not my job to like give people the answers that their particular community needs like I'm I'm there to name the truth to name mm. some of these things to share my stories but, but the rest of the work, they have to do it. And it took yeah. me a little while to kind of come to terms with that. The uh, the people pleaser in me had a hard time like realizing like I get to speak and share this with you and I write the books. Now you can read the books and you can consult the right yeah. people and do the work you need to do. But I'm not responsible for that work, you know, like and so we all are responsible for our own our own lane, you know, and I had to I had to sort of be able to distance myself from that the critiques yeah. or the questions or the demands like for me to help solve the problem. And so that's <laughs> been interesting, you know, and a, a good I, thing for me to learn. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it, yeah. it's such a, it's such a hard boundary to set, isn't it? To say, yeah. to say like, this was my portion of the work and that is, that's it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I've made my offering and I've let it out into the world and actually I, I acknowledge that it's now separate from me to some extent, you know, that yeah. I've, I've kind of birthed it and I feel very connected to it, but also now you're going to feel connected to it in, in whatever right. way, like that might not right. be a positive connection. Right. And that's going to be hard for both of us, but you don't get to kind of call me back over it. Like right. I, right. I wasn't making any more offering than this piece of here it is <laughs> yes. right now. <laughs> that's, that was the deal. That was the deal right up front. Mm-hmm. Which is hard. I don't think a lot of audiences quite understand that yeah. the role for us because of the digital social media world we live in, I think has made it a lot worse. Well, if I can just slide into your DMs and ask my question or give you my critique, or if I can just post mm-hmm. this critique online somewhere, surely you'll see it and you'll engage with me on some level. And that's asking too much, honestly. And um, so boundaries and stepping away from that is so hard, <laughs> but it's really important. And that's a hard lesson to learn. Yeah. And, that, and actually, there's a neat segue into talking about living resistance, because it's a form of resistance to protect your, well, I was going to, I mean, boundaries are too bland a word for it, actually, to protect your, your whole emotional core from yeah. being pulled every time you log in. And, and even if that's being pulled by people who are in need of help, mm-hmm. like for me, a big part of the journey has been learning that I can't always be the one to give that help as much as I would love to yeah, yeah. I, it can't always be me I just 
I'm just I'm limited. I'm limited as a yes. as a weak human being. Yes. Mm. Yeah. It's difficult. And I think for me, like writing Living Resistance was my my next like what's here with native. This was really hard to write. Here are all these truths. Here's my own trauma, my own triggering, all of these things. And then I I needed the next book to get me yeah. through that and into kind of the hope. I mean, Living Resistance is still an intense book in a lot of ways, but it's also, I think, a really hopeful book and a book that is meant to help us move forward together. And mm. and I hope that people feel that as much as I felt writing it. I mean, I really enjoyed writing this book and, you know, and wanted to bring people into that, that world of resistance in a new way. Yeah. yeah. I love the way that uh, Living Resistance opens with a kind of caution um, I wrote it down in my notes, actually. It says, you're a human being, you're always arriving. I love the way you kind of advise us that this mm-hmm. is not going to be a momentary act of learning. Like, you can't read this, swallow it whole, and have done the work. Yes. <laughs> that's not the beginning and end. Yes, and I think that's one of the most consistent things I tell people, because especially when I'm speaking to an institution or a group of people, like, we see the problems in the world. Of course, we want to fix them quickly. I mean, they're they're worth fixing. They're real real problems mm-hmm. that deserve a quick response sometimes. But that's not the way our resistance can work, or we will burn out. We will. It's not sustainable the way that we're often doing this. So the whole you know buy these four books and read them, attend this book mm-hmm. talk, or go to this event, and you will now be you know an expert yeah. in or you'll now be prepared to have every conversation on this topic. And that's not our resistance is lifelong work that we are human beings that will mess up and we have to start all over again or take a few steps back or ask deep questions. That's all okay. It's, mm. it's literally written into our DNA. This is, we're humans. I mean, it's, um, we can't get away yeah. from ourselves. So don't force <laughs> this change, you know, don't force it so hard all the time. Mm. I don't know if it's a very modern thing, but there is this sense that we just want to have done stuff. We don't like to be in process. It, it makes mm. us feel vulnerable and uncomfortable. Yeah. And we don't like the uncertainty. And I also feel like as as like writers and as teachers, everything in our training, like I, you know, I've trained as, as a teacher, I've trained in marketing and things like that as well. And all of those things have always said to me, tell people what they will have learned by the end of this, like make mm-hmm. them an offer based on the end result. Yes. And I give people a terrible end offer. I'm like, oh, you will have maybe felt a bit more scrambled about who you are. Yeah. Some of the, the biggest critiques of some of my books, I remember there have been a few online where it was like, you know, people are like, she didn't give us the answers to the questions she asked. And I, I think it's so funny because I'm like, what if I'm just helping you ask questions? You may not know the answer yet. What if your answer is different than my answer? Then what's what's helpful for me to give you my answer? If it's a different answer for you, if your resistance looks different than mine, in some ways, in some ways, our resistance will be the same, the same end goal, like justice and peace and whatever that may be. But there, it, we're going to get to it differently. And I know some people who are in a very Western thought mentality, a very lin- linear they want me to ask a question and then they want, they want to read a little further into the chapter where I give the answer. And it's, Mm. I think it's kind of funny when people get upset because they, 
wanted me to give them that. And I refused to give them that. (laughs) It's so withholding. And I, but I, I also think there are so many other people out there who are making that offer. But we as the audience to that work feel let down by ourselves over and over again once we've consumed it because we can't, mm-hmm. as it turns out, do it all in one go. And so yeah. we constantly turn that, that kind of failure inwards and think, oh, no, everyone else has read this book and is now making a million pounds and is, you know, I don't right. know, perfectly fit and just OK with everything. And I've read those books and I'm still, unfortunately, me. Like, you know, that, that can turn inward so much. I, I just, it's time to start making honest offers to actors. I feel that so strongly. Yeah, I really love that. And I think that's why I started the book with this, the personal realm, which is the realm mm-hmm. where we get to focus on us. We get to ask how we live, how we live in these bodies we have, how we live with our experiences. Like I struggle with anxiety. That's always a part of my life. It ends up being a part of my job is to manage my anxiety. You know, um, I am indigenous. So I struggle with aspects of identity and care. And how do we learn how to love ourselves? Like really love ourselves. How do we learn how to practice presence with our bodies and ourselves? Mm. How do we pay attention to those seasons that we find, like just the personal life seasons that we live through? I I knew I couldn't um, leave something like that out of the book because our personal resistance life is so important because it's what we start everything from. And if we neglect ourselves or hold ourselves to that crazy high standard, it's just going to lead to the shame and the burnout. And I, I hope that by starting with that, that, the reader feels like, okay, I can breathe a little and I can start this journey as who I am, not who mm. I think I should be. They're so gentle, those aspects of, of your realm of personal resistance. You know, they're like, okay, take good care of yourself. Yeah. Feel grounded, know who you are, be a little more present in the world. I mean, I think some people will hear that and say, well, that's not resistant. Mm-hmm. How does that help to, you know, contribute to, to resisting the terrible things in the world? What's that about? Yeah, <laughs> I, I figured that some people would, would think that way. And I think that that honestly is... That is such a uh, colonial mentality that we have been forced into. You know, there in the U.S. we have something called the Nat Ministry with Trisha Hersey. And yes, she's, yeah. yes. Trisha's work is incredible. She's a black woman, and she's writing about insisting on rest and how we fight mm-hmm. capitalism. We fight these systems with rest, and I know that that is controversial because we don't like rest. We don't value it. We think we have to earn it. You know, there's so much about it. So starting the book by saying, um, actually, if you want to do any of your work well in the world, any of it, you have to learn to love yourself well. And I will say, I mean, I struggle with personal boundaries and all these aspects of my personal realm, uh, my personal resistance. I I struggle all the time. I'll have two weeks where I feel completely thrown off and then a really good week. And then, you know, like it's not meant to be linear. And so um, I want people to recognize though that that micro beginning even at the very center of who we are and then letting it spread outward. So we care for ourselves. Then we realize, oh, well, if I care about myself, shouldn't I love my neighbor too? Shouldn't I love Mm. Mother Earth? Shouldn't I love the creatures around me? Because we're starting from an ethic of, love if it's self-love and that doesn't mean we're just selfish only thinking of ourselves if we Mm. do that and it doesn't lead to care for others then there's something that's wrong and our resistance isn't there but i think a lot of people who truly practice self-love who are truly doing that work 
it's this beautiful, just like bleeding out of them. I mean, and it's mm-hmm. just, you can, you can sense it about those people that they're grounded yeah. and sustained in a way that a lot of people aren't. And it's a gift to be around them because mm. you can sense that. And I think that there's a wisdom in it and, and it is gentle, like resistance. I didn't put the raised fist on the cover of this book. I put this <laughs> and I wanted yeah. people to see the cover and be like, that's not resistance. What is that? Mm. You know, because mm. we do think of resistance as hard and rugged and strong and I don't aggressive. like all these aggressive. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I wanted us to, yes, see it as that, but can it also be something else? Can it be many things at once? I mean, I had not clocked how challenging wintering would be to people in general, but particularly Americans. <laughs> I'm afraid to yeah. say. I had not expected the kind of howls of anguish that said, mm. what if I can't stop? I'm not allowed to stop. It's not possible. And then they kind of try and turn it back on me and say, yeah. that's privilege. That's privilege. I haven't got the privilege to stop. And I always have to say like, that this isn't about choosing to stop. This is about saying you will be stopped. You know, like you are not superhuman. You can't continue right. forever without rest. You can't keep running down your reserves. And right. the problem is that that is really terrifying. And once you realize how terrifying that is to not be economically productive in a country like mine that values economic productivity over literally everything else, then you start really getting how important and vital it is and how radical it is to start engaging with this basic human need, mm-hmm. very basic need. And I and I had not, I'd never expected to have to articulate that. Like yeah. really, yeah. it really took me aback when I first heard people say, "Like I can't do that. I can't possibly do that." It really, it really shocked me. I, I think it it kind of echoed back to me in a way that really made me reflect even deeper about what I was what I was trying to say here, which is like this yeah. is not a neutral issue by any means. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, I think about this all the time. In the US, we have, you know, New Year's and New Year's is when you set all your, all your big (laughs) goals. And I really have issues with New Year's because I change my goals when the seasons change. And I don't even necessarily mean to, but about every three to four months, I look around me, I look at my office, I look at my movement, my exercise, I look at the way I'm eating, I look at my mental health, my spiritual health. Mm. I ask some questions and I modify a little. I I do that every few months. And what if we did that instead of at the end of the calendar year, we suddenly panic and we haven't (laughs) done any of the internal work, but we suddenly think that we need this this huge checklist of all the things we want to change about ourselves. Many of them unhealthy Mm. things that we probably don't need to change. And then we burn out, you know, halfway through January. And I think about that all the time that we just want to go, go, go until like you said, we're forced to stop because we're so exhausted. And there's something so beautiful about following the seasons, following the world, following the earth and letting that actually change our internal, you know, sort of dialogue with ourselves. And it's okay to just pause and re-examine your life a little bit every now and then do it more often Mm. than not, because it really is a, it's a gift to ask ourselves those questions in a tender way instead of a critical way. Yeah. And it's that link between the self and others that if we can't show ourselves that compassion, 
And if we can't have the conversation with our ego that tells us that we have to be the Mm -hmm. centre of the universe or else we're nothing, how on earth do we then teach the people around us, by example? How do we teach the next generation to take care of themselves? Because I don't think anyone who is working themselves to death literally wants their children to do that. So, Mm -hmm. So how do we lead? How do we, you know, this is part of resistance, isn't it? It's taking leadership. Yeah. On a very personal level. And if we cannot do something as fundamental to existence as resting, then what are we saying? What on earth are we saying to people watching us very intently to see how it's done? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's difficult and it's interesting to be just to be a writer during this time because. The publishing world feels really intense right now. I don't know if it feels that way for you. The publishing Super world intense right feels now. intense right now in a way that I've not experienced with my last two books. And even in the last like year and a half, to me, it's felt just intense in a different way. And um, part of my personal ethic of doing this work is making sure that the things that I've gone through, that maybe other women, other Black women, Indigenous women, queer women, women of color, disabled women marginalized women don't have to go through some of the things I went through. So trying to sort of hold the door open to say, this is a problem in publishing. This is also a problem in publishing. There is no space Mm. for care and rest in publishing. There is no, you know, it's a cat. It's still a capitalist Institute. It's still colonial in many ways. It's still got problems. Like to just sort of be honest about those conversations has been a part of my personal resistance in helping other especially women to not feel so alone Um, because Mm. I have felt really alone in this industry before where I didn't know if I was doing it right or (laughs) I didn't know if I should set boundaries or, you know, those kinds of questions. And I want us to be able to talk about it, you know? Yeah, definitely. And for us to, I don't know, for us to be able to, again, kind of set some kind of an example that invites people in rather than repels them yeah and that doesn't fall back on saying well I found it hard so you're gonna you're gonna have to find it hard too like I don't I don't want to be that person I want to say how do I put down the rope ladder for the next person to just give them that little extra bit of assistance that took me like 20 years of work to find my way through (laughs) yeah would I not make that invitation I don't understand (laughs) yeah There's a lovely question in the chat, which I'll ask you now. Do you think that people need to hit rock bottom for the lifelong journey message to land? 
so yeah in order to really understand that this is a journey this is a process that it is slow learning and not instant learning where do we have to be to to actually get that that's an interesting thought that is a great question and i feel like that um and Catherine, i'd love to hear your thoughts on this too actually because um i feel like it depends on the person because i think some people are aware of how they're doing and i mm. think that some of us are not so aware and so i think sometimes we're not ready and then we totally hit rock bottom and there's this you get hospitalized or you have something happen in your life where everything does truly fall apart and you realize mm. i can't sustain this anymore for me um a personal part of my life was like a year and a half ago, I was just having a lot of um, health issues and my anxiety and stress. I was not managing it well in my work life and my personal life. I was seeing enough warning signs and feeling bad enough in my body that I knew if I didn't step in into my own life and do something that every part of me would suffer. My, My body would suffer, my mental health, my work, my family, my spirit, and I would end up in the hospital at some point. So well, for me, it wasn't a rock bottom. It was like a big sort of red flag wake up call. Wake up call. Me. And yeah. I was able to make some of the changes I need to make. I'm still making them. So that was like, that's like <laughs> the, the mini beginning of this particular line of my whole life that I'll now struggle back and forth to try to mm. care for myself in this way. But it affected every part of my life. And if I want to write books and bring healing and do the work that I care about for the reader, for other people... Like I have to care for my body and myself and I have to manage my stress and my anxiety and these things that affect me daily. Yeah. What do you think, Catherine? Do you have any thoughts? I think it really varies. And I mm-hmm. and I think probably for some people, they have to hit multiple rock bottoms. Before, yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> before they, you know, because I, I, I've seen it all around me of people hitting a rock bottom and then going back to exactly the same thing again afterwards. And that was actually me. Like I, I did that. I kept, because I couldn't understand it. I couldn't yeah. understand why my burnout kept revisiting me. Like I didn't have the knowledge or the toolkit available to right. get it. And so I almost had no choice but to keep, you know, like a moth kind of banging themselves against the window, returning to what I already knew would burn me out. But, you know, just doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, so, I, so like in a way, it's not people's fault that they do that because... Yeah they might not have what they need in order to to not do it. And and I think in addition, people who are able to take care of themselves and who feel that permission to take care of themselves won't have to do that. But that's actually, again, like not something we're always in control of. Mm -hmm. And so many of us have been brought up to believe that we are only valuable to the world if we are earning a lot of money if we are physically right. well if we are right. able to take part in you know certain community activities very vividly you know some oh, there's all kinds of ways right. that come into that yeah and so I wonder if rock bottom's even even the thing I wonder if it's right. even enough and I will say that this is when when I think about the power of storytelling and being a storyteller that like Hillary said the personal realm chapters so good I felt seen. And that means so much to me because like storytelling is such a portal and a pathway to one another's lives. And at the same time, like some sort of mirror. I mean, I cannot tell you 
how many times like some big change or some huge epiphany has happened in my life just because of something I read in a book. It could be two lines. It could be someone's personal story where it made my story click finally, like those pieces that I hadn't put these things together. Now I'm realizing why this has happened or why I can't get past this or whatever it is. And I just, um, I'm so grateful that we can tell stories and we can enter into one another's stories. I think it's Mm. more powerful than we understand. And actually that, that kind of connects me back to native in a way, because the, the power of that, like quite symbolic storytelling that we know is woven through ancient human cultures, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that there is this, ability to understand the world on a kind of metaphorical level yeah which in some way delivers it more directly to us it, it almost like skips our defenses and, and gets in there yes. <laughs> you know when we're trying yes. to hear it and that's something that I'm always trying to sort of sneak in in my work is like not telling people how to do it because I don't yes. know but offering people a set of images that they can use to understand it instead something much more indirect and maybe a little bit sneaky like I'm okay with it being a little bit sneaky (laughs) yeah storytelling is so subversive and I found that in my speaking events sometimes you know I'll be somewhere and they'll be like we want you to speak on activism and advocacy and I'm like okay and then I show up and I do my you know one of my favorite talks is on becoming caring resistors and I I open the talk with learning how to be a resistor for your own soul. And I read poetry and I tell stories because, you know, by the middle of the talk, I will be talking about colonization. I will be talking about land theft and how indigenous bodies have been disconnected <laughs> from their lands. Like I will be getting into all the the mm-hmm. painful stuff, the hard stuff. And in the midst of being in that, I'm also going to tell you other stories. I'm going to read you a poem again, and I'm going to mm-hmm. do it in a way that helps us like settle into this. And I always find it really interesting to watch people's faces, even as I'm speaking, because they're at first they're like (laughs) confused. Like, why are you talking about loving myself and doing this? And then, you know, and then um, you can see them like starting to unfold the layers and understand why I need to begin sometimes with a story Mm. or a poem and some of the, those gentle ways, and then come into the, the hard stuff. And then lead us back out again through another story or through another poem, because there has to be a bit of a rhythm to it for, for, Mm. for all of us to enter in with each other. Yeah. And I think also for me, it's like, how do we make this intuitive instead of didactic? You know, how do we let it kind of seep through the skin? Right. Instead of barraging people with it, which I, you know, I don't like to learn like that. I mean, I, the thing that was repeated to me over and over again as a child, which I think is still true, is I don't like being told. <laughs> yes. It's not, it's not my most endearing quality, but it is also <laughs> definitely one of my qualities, you know. <laughs> I don't want people to tell me anything. I want to work it out for myself. <laughs> yes. I think a lot of people are like that, though, you know. And I think it's a, I, I think of my work, I think I write about it in Living Resistance. But, you know, a few years ago, I just kind of came to the realization that when I am at my best, that at the core of who I am, I am both fierce and gentle, that I am a, a fierce storyteller. I want to tell the truth. I want to be in solidarity with people, but I also want to be gentle and I want to practice care. And in a lot of ways, people think that those things would never go together, but I'm like, but here I am and I can't change myself. <laughs> like, this is how things. like This is how I exist in the world, in this liminal space. So, and, and if I changed that, I've tried to change it before. 
And it didn't go well because I didn't feel like myself and I didn't do my work as well, you know? So holding that and allowing ourselves to be who we are, you know, even when it doesn't make sense. Yeah. And that's true. Let's move on to the communal realm that you talk about, because I think that anything about the communal realm is such an interesting question for our time, because maybe we've all become quite de-skilled in the communal you know we've you and I have grown up in an era of intense individualism such as maybe the world has never known before um how do we what what's your toolkit what what are you telling us that we need to do in order to return to that communal sense of living and of being a person yeah so I guess I should step back and say the the book's framework is these four realms of resistance so I talked about the personal realm and it's just a cyclical, it's, I'm looking at a picture of it on my wall. It's a, it's a Venn diagram. And so you've got these three circles and then this, you know, it's a Venn diagram, the overlap in the middle. And so we're talking about the personal realm, the communal realm, the ancestral realm, and the integral. Think of integration, right? And so each of these realms represents the four seasons. It represents these four aspects of our, our bodies and our spirits. And, but it also is like these spaces we inhabit as humans. And so this communal realm is like, um, I think of it as springtime. It's like when we're planting seeds in the ground, we're planting seeds, we're doing work, we're doing the work to see what happens ahead of us. And I write about stuff like, I mean, I write about care for children, like our children, like all of our children, the children of the world, the children in Gaza right now, like who are the children we're caring about? Are we caring about indigenous children in boarding schools? Are we caring about poor children in our communities, you know, um, that kind of conversation, which is difficult. I write about um, our ethics of resistance. I write about yoga and the appropriation of yoga in Mm. the West, which is huge. And I was like, I have to write about this. I can't ignore (laughs) this, you know? Um, So it covers like that section was the hardest. It was the heaviest for me to write. Mm. I write about care for the land as resistance. I mean, it, it covers, it covers a lot of stuff. It covers really difficult topics but it's also beautiful to think about kinship and solidarity. And those words can be so scary for us. And I'm always trying to find ways to make it more real, um, more tangible, I guess, because so many of these things are just these like, you know, ideas or even academic ideas, you know, and they don't feel very real to us. And I'm always trying to think of ways to like pull it back to very real everyday, even small little things like, Solidarity can be checking in on a friend that you know is struggling. And it can also be showing up to a protest with a friend who is fighting, you know, for something. Um, It can be so many different things. And what does our kinship relationship look like with Mother Earth right now? What is the relationship to our bodies, to the land, to others who are protecting the lands around us? What is our responsibility in that? That's a huge question and one that will always be asking as human beings, but I encourage people to not be afraid to ask those questions. And that is community. That's the communal space that we inhabit, even Mm. if we don't realize it. Yeah. I mean, I I think what strikes me most of all about that communal realm is that it's often a really contested space that we're working in. You know, it's it's often full of conflict. It's often full of people who are not behaving in a perfect way, you know, when we talk about community, we so often portray this lovely picture of everybody holding hands together and everyone kind of working together. And that isn't how dealing with the communal aspect of life actually feels. Mm-hmm. And 
that doesn't mean to say it's not important all the same. Like that doesn't mean to say it's going wrong necessarily. That's just how it's always felt and we're not used to it. We're used to being able to just hide from it. Yes, that's true. And, And it is hard to know when to stay and when to go from certain, I mean, Many people who read my books have been abused by communities that they've been a part of, Mm. and they've had to leave those communities. They're trying to build new communities. So there's so many deep, painful questions, even about that word, that idea of what community is. And we're always trying to build it. And that whole idea of kinship and solidarity, I, I think I write about that we just, we don't get to escape each other. We don't get to escape one another's stories because they're always going to be there. And that's really hard, but that's also really beautiful. You know, if we can enter into one another's stories, that's, there's so much power in that. And that that feels very strongly linked to the ancestral realm as well, because there's the aspects of kinship in community that also kind of goes across time as well as across the spaces we inhabit. It's interesting you using the word ancestral because I think that might be a word that people connect very strongly with Indigenous experiences is this kind of greater honouring of the ancestral than perhaps right. we have in mainstream Western society. Would that be- yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I write about how different Indigenous cultures and backgrounds have this connection, and it's a very real, just tangible sort of relationship. And I, I really wanted to write for anybody reading the book, whether you're Indigenous or not, that there is this really beautiful, not just responsibility, but the path of our life is that we do exist in this liminal space between those who came before us and those who come after. And I want to believe that the work I'm doing today can help heal my ancestors who are already passed on. Like surely, you know, the work I'm doing in the world, the good things can find them. And that also the bad things, like we have to pay attention to what we're, what we're doing and the good and the bad of what we practice in this life will absolutely affect those who come after us, that we're uh, ancestors in the making, right? And that we have this, we do have a responsibility to care and to pay attention to history unfolding, to pay attention to the things happening in the world. And the ancestral realm I knew would be hard for some people to read. It was hard for me to write just because at the same time, studying DNA and ancestry is so popular now in our world. Yeah. So I knew that people would connect to it in that way. And I think it's important, you know? But what world are we building now that is affecting a timeline that we don't always understand? Yeah. And I think one of the big questions is for those of us who are raised without much consciousness of of our ancestry, actually, Mm -hmm. you know, I think one of the aspects of of individualism has been this lack of connection between the past and, and thinking about the future as well. I wonder what you would say to people who feel like they don't have that connection. Can that connection be built again? Is, and maybe that's why people do DNA research, actually. I think it is. I think that there's a longing for that. And I think that, um, I think sometimes the danger then with that is this romanticizing some of those stories without then seeing the truth of history or paying attention mm. to the things that we're holding on to now. And, um, but I, I think I write somewhere that you don't have to know exactly who your ancestors are. A lot of people don't. A lot of people can't. There's many different situations in the world that make that really difficult. And so I think there is something beautiful about just holding that that space of honoring your own life now. Because I think that individualism of 
um, I'm going to do what I want now. And this is it. And this is, this is all mine can be really harmful. And the power of the, we have the seven generations prophecy in our culture where we're saying seven generations from now, all these years past us, all these years later, what are we leaving to those future generations? What are they going to inherit from us? What have we inherited from our ancestors? And no matter who they were, like what beautiful work can we do in the world? And again, I just, I know it's, it can be a painful topic for people, but I, I want us to lean into it. And maybe we rethink things and our ancestors are also like the trees that were on our property years ago, or, um, you know, these beings, these wise beings, the rocks are our elders, the trees are our elders, these waters that it, they're all around us are our teachers. And if we can think of those relationships as well, I think that that's really important to honor our relationship to Mother Earth as one of, we are like curious children learning from our elders. And I think that's a beautiful uh, sentiment that can lead us a lot in our life, in our resistance, whatever that looks like. Mm, That's so lovely. We are so nearly out of time. I feel like I could, I need like another hour. I I need like an extension. Um, (laughs) I just wanted to finish by asking about your your final realm of integration. It's actually a nice note to end on. Yeah. Can we hope for a sense of integration in our lifetime? Or is is that a very lofty hope in reality? I think we absolutely can. I think that the beautiful thing about this framework that I created is that to remind ourselves that we're living and existing in all of these realms all at once, all the time. It's again, it's not like a linear thing where I'm jumping from realm to realm and I'll end with integration. Maybe we integrated, <laughs> we integrated one aspect, but then we had to start over somewhere else. That's absolutely okay. That is absolutely the human experience. I just want, I want people to feel sort of safe and held and challenged in my work, in my writing, in my words. Like, and the, that last section of the integral realm is very much like about what is prayer and what is dreaming? Like, what are your dreams for yourself, for the world? What is lifelong resistance? It was these kinds of topics of the integral realm is like our, um, our shkode, or that means fire in Potawatomi. It's like our, our heart center. Like what is at the center of who you are and what do you need to do to find that in the world? What do you need to do to find it in your everyday life? just in the mornings before work while you're having coffee, like wherever that space is where you can find yourself, where you can feel your own fire burning. Like this is the thing that I do in the world. This is the thing that makes me come alive. I want people to keep finding that for themselves or each other or whatever that looks like. And I hope that my, I hope my book inspires people to do that and gives them hope that it's possible. Mm, that's such a lovely note to end on thank you so thank much you. it's been it's been really it's it's having that hope that lets you go back to the work and to keep doing it and to keep yeah. returning it and to to let it be imperfect knowing that you can keep doing it and that the doing it is the thing that matters I think that's right that's really yeah thank you well I will say good night thank you for being here um <laughs> and I hope you'll come again soon but for now I will wish you good night from here because it's eight o'clock and I go to bed at like nine yes <laughs> good, good morning good afternoon and good evening everyone you're really soon <laughs> thanks everyone bye, bye. Welcome back. One of my jobs for today is 
lining up all of my jars ready for the Christmas preserves. I've got a big collection. But of course, every year some get given away, which is a very good thing. I'm going to make English mince meat, which is a meat-free affair, ready for the mince pies at Christmas. For those of you that aren't familiar with that, it is a lovely kind of spicy, sweet mix of dried fruits. And if you're English and hearing that, you'd be like, why are you explaining a mince pie? It's just such a basic food. But we eat them at Christmas and they are good. So I'm going to make some mince meat. And this weekend is also the weekend I've set aside to make my Christmas cake and my Christmas pudding. They're both very similar, really. Dense, fruity cakes. But the pudding has to be steamed for several hours. It's quite an endeavour. The whole house starts the smell of Christmas, which can only be a good thing. So I'm looking forward to that this weekend. And it's funny, isn't it, that for me, that's one of the ways that I resist a lot of the pressures of the, the modern world. I'd much rather make a Christmas pudding than go to a party. It's how I nurture my friends and family over Christmas and also how I soothe myself. That time in the kitchen this weekend, handling all the ingredients, stirring, tasting, watching, waiting, packaging it all up. That will be really nice time for me, really soothing time. Time to think about things. I hope you have something similar to do. And talking to Caitlin as well makes me think about how she has reinforced her bonds with her own culture and community as a Indigenous American. And it's funny, isn't it, that it's so easy to let go of those older practices that are handed down to us. Everything points us towards making things new all the time. But sometimes, at this time of year, we can connect with the old and therefore with our ancestors, I think. So, yeah, I'll be thinking a bit about that while I package up all of my various things this week, <laughs> ready for Christmas. I'm going to be back in a couple of weeks with an interview with Camille T. Dungy. But until then, take care. See you soon. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for being here to explore how we live now. This podcast is presented by Catherine May, produced by Megan Hutchins and Buddy Peace, with social media by Sarah Horner and communications by Becca Pierce. Buddy Peace also composed the wonderful incidental music. For updates, show notes, transcriptions and plenty of stories, subscribe to my newsletter at katherinemay.substack.com where you can also upgrade to support the show and join my vibrant community of readers, writers and wanderers. And finally, if you enjoyed my podcast, please consider buying my new book, Enchantment. There's a link in the show notes. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.